You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. Today, we've got an excellent guest. Uh, We've got the privilege of having Aubrey Hendricks, who is a lifelong social activist and one of the foremost commentators on the intersection of religion and political economy in America. He's the author of multiple books. One is an award-winning book that's been celebrated much. It's The Politics of Jesus, Rediscovering the True Revolutionary Nature of Jesus's Teachings and How They Have Been Corrupted, uh, that came out in 2006. Uh, He's also got The Universe Bends Towards Justice, Radical Reflections on the Bible, the Church, and the Body Politic. And most recently, he's got this new, fresh, hot, prophetic word, uh, this new book called Christians Against Christianity, How Right-Wing Evangelicals Are Destroying Our Nation and Our Faith. Uh, He is the past president of Payne Theological Seminary, uh, one of the oldest African-American, the oldest African-American theological seminary in the United States, Um, currently a visiting scholar at Columbia University, a visiting professor at Union Theological Seminary, and emeritus professor of biblical interpretation at New York Theological Seminary. And there's just so much more that we could say about him, but welcome, brother. Hendricks to uh, Inverse Podcast. We're just uh, really grateful to spend some time in conversation with you. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, great to be here with you. Thank you. Dr. Hendricks, we wanted to give you an opportunity right up uh, top to talk about um, this new book, which as you saw on Twitter, uh, I said, it's it's hard to read, not because it's, it's written in a way that's not accessible. The opposite is true. It's just so quotable. You want to like pick something up and write quotes down all the time. Uh, Could you sketch for those listening um, uh, this project and and the heart behind it? Yeah, uh, well, thank you. Well, first, let me say the reason I've written this book, uh, Christians Against Christianity, it was out of a great sense of of anger and disdain and, and sadness with what I see going on with this right wing evangelical movement, uh, the way that they are destroying civility in this country and, and, uh, and, and really uh, are anathema to, to the gospel message. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted to, to try to set, set it straight, um, you know, uh, because I mean, what's really emblematic, what they're all about is the fact that they would support um, an unchristian, anti-Christian, sociopathic, pathological liar, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, in a walking embodiment of the seven deadly sins by Donald <laughs> Trump, um, and and some of them call him the Messiah, literally yeah. call him the Messiah. Right. And uh, Sheldon Adelson's wife, uh, you know, he was a major benefactor of, of Trump and the Republican Party. She said that she wants, she hopes that there's a book of the Bible to be written called the Book of Trump. So mm-hmm. we're talking. I wanted to to, to fight you know, to oppose that and to discredit that and to kill every lie standing and discredit every every liar standing. <laughs> That's a little bit uh, about the heart. Um, uh, the, the structure of the book itself I found really interesting as well. Um, uh, I mean, you're a brilliant biblical scholar, but your social analysis and the way that um, you weave 
history in is um, uh, so compelling. Um, would you sketch a little bit of um, uh, the structure of the text itself? Yes, I, uh, I began the book with an introduction, um, sort of a counterpoint or uh, a counter a counterpoint to what right-wing evangelicalism is. And I, it's uh, autobiographical. I talk about my upbringing in Virginia and, and, and the kind of, uh, uh, the kind of loving uh, embodiment of love your neighbor that I grew up with. And I, and I uh, that, is, um, that is such a contrast to what these right-wing jokes are doing. And then um, I, I go on to, um, to sketch, to give a sense of what ev evangelicalism once was. Yeah. You know, um, how it had uh, such a positive social conscience and uh, how the, uh, uh, the major abolitionists, all of them were, were um, evangelicals and how evangelicals um, were concerned about labor and working people and, and unions, even about women's rights. Um, and sort of as a, as a baseline to show just how these right-wing evangelicals have deviated with their, uh, with their, their hateful oppositional uh, stances to almost everything has to do with love. And then I go on to, um, uh, to look at their very dangerous misappropriation and misportrayal of the, of the, the message of Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, point of entry was, um, John MacArthur's uh, uh, very tragic and backward letter uh, about uh, uh, as social justice is being unbiblical um, oh, right, and right. implicitly sinful. And uh, essentially what I look to show through um, you know, exe exegesis of the text and looking at the meaning of the Hebrew terms, uh, several Hebrew terms of the Bible, and well, the most foundational term of the Bible, which is justice, Mishpat, uh, demonstrate that the basic, most foundational ethic of the Bible is justice, more particularly social justice, justice in the society, which is social justice. Um, and uh, I'm pretty proud of that because I think it says something that needs to be said. And, I, and, and it's an argument that um, they'll have a hard time dismantling. Um, I, I go on to look at at uh, homosexuality, um, what the Bible really says about homosexuality and what it doesn't say, and to explain essentially um, uh, to show how uh, unclear the, uh, the meanings of the biblical texts are that that purport to deal with homosexuality, um, but also that particularly in the uh, in the books of Moses where they occur in the, in the Hebrew Bible that they're talking about they're trying to keep the Hebrews, Moses is trying to keep the Hebrews, um, helping them maintain their particularity as a faith and not go over to the Canaanite faith. And so it has all kinds of things for them not to do on pain of death, including working on the Sabbath, which mm -hmm. is to keep them from becoming Canaan. And then on from there, um, look at immigration and how um, uh, deeply important immigration is in, 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 the, in, in the Bible. Um, uh, you know, it's one of the most important um, commandments in the Bible is to take care of the immigrant strangers. And I go on down the, the line to show that. And not only that, but to show that um, that uh, 
that those in power have a responsibility to look out for the, for the least of these, those in, in positions of power and governance. And they're going to look, on, look at abortion. What does the Bible say and not say about abortion? Of course, it says very little, almost nothing. In fact, it only, the only thing we have in it is implicit. It's Exodus 21, verses 22 through 23. It doesn't even call, talk about abortion, uh, but also to look at the, the history of, of the way abortion has been, uh, has been treated and not treated throughout the history of, of, of Christendom, which is very, very, uh, very and I think. And look, and I look at the NRA, the unholy alliance between evangelicals, right-wing evangelicals and, and the NRA, and then also how um, the unholy alliance between right-wing evangelicals and big business against working folks. Uh, which most of their followers, but their, their followers are so benighted, they have no idea the betrayal that they're experiencing. And lastly, and the epilogue is entitled A, a Spirit of Antichrist. That's mm -hmm. right. And I go on to show how uh, the only place we have an Antichrist mentioned is in First John, the Johannine letters, and, uh, and the Antichrist is anyone who teaches um, the opposite of what or teaches against the teachings of Christ in the name of Christ. You know, the, the Revelation, Book of Revelation doesn't mention any Antichrist. I mean, it mentions a beast, but that's not Antichrist. Essentially to show that in many ways, this right-wing evangelical movement um, is anti-Christian in that its lack of, its lack of love, uh, uh, its mean-spiritedness, um, it, it, its support of an unjust status quo, and just you know, spewing hatred every day. That this is not only unchristian, it's anti-Christian. You know? mm -hmm. And so that's that is the uh, essentially the structure of the book. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And um, and I just want to say, I mean, I really appreciate. I mean, there's so many things I appreciate about the book. Um, I appreciate um, uh, even as you start off talking about your own experience in your own church. Um, I mean, you take me back immediately, right? And I can picture growing up and the way that I was raised and the kind of faith um, uh, of the folks that formed who I am today. And I, and I just really appreciate you making that connection as a biblical scholar, taking the time um, mm. to draw to a community of faith that shaped you. Um, but it also, the other thing that um, I, I, I've always appreciated ever since I read um, the politics of Jesus that Jesus, you wrote uh -huh. um, is the way in which, on one hand, you're the accessibility of of how you, you bring your scholarship, but you make it accessible to the people. But then also, um, just the way that you take Jesus seriously, right, and, and allow the ethics of Jesus to really shape your Christianity. I think that shines through so much, so clearly in your works. Anyway, I appreciate that um, so much. But I'm really interested. Um, as such a well-known uh, biblical scholar, I'm curious, uh, what passage have you picked um, that you would like to ground some of our conversation in? And can you read that for us? Yeah, yeah, I, I will. I would like to have uh, just read uh, Love Your Neighbor as Yourself because the implications are just so extraordinary. But um, one, I mean, that is one of the passages that, uh, that, that, uh, consists the, uh, I'm sorry, the core of the, the gospel for, for me, but the passage, the other passage is Matthew 25, 31 through uh, 46, uh, the judgment of the nations. Um, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. 
all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world or the sovereignty prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer. <clears throat> and that the, uh, the Greek word is dikaios. Uh, so it's really should be translated in mine. The way I translate it is uh, then the just ones will answer him. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and, and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to the one of the least of these who are uh, <clears throat> members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it, you did not do it to one of the least of these. You did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the decayoi, the just ones into eternal life. So um, mm. that is so important, I think, because um, first off, it is the primary mode of judgment uh, for our actions in this world that Jesus gives us. And by extension, he's telling us this is the primary way that we will be judged by God um, in the final analysis. And um, and it talks about nations gathered before, before not just individuals, nations as well. Um, but it talks about the importance. What it doesn't say is that folk will be judged by who they sleep with, um, you know, who they uh, uh, who they uh, intimately love. Um, it doesn't say they'll be judged by. Um, the kind of religious confession that they give. What it says is that folk will be judged by whether they've tried to do justice in the world, whether they've tried to help people and love people. And it's, and it's uh, you know, specific. It talks about taking care of, uh, it talks about um, um, the incarcerated. Mm -hmm. um, it, it talks about immigrants. I mean, it's, it's, it's very comprehensive, but uh, what it essentially says is that the way to go into eternal punishment, the way to go into hell is to um, actually do what many of these right-wing evangelicals do. Don't care about the poor folk. Don't try to help anybody. Um, don't care about, uh, uh, about criminal justice. Um, they don't care about, um, about social safety net. 
you know, they're mired in their foolish libertarianism. And so this, it's just packed with so much that mm -hmm. I, and, and again, it is the primary mode of judgment that yeah. we as Christians are given. And if we all, if churches taught that, then we wouldn't spend all of our time, so many of us spend our time um, being so mean-spirited and destructive and, and uh, mm. so hierarchical. Mm. Dr. Hendricks, um, it, one of the things I deeply respect about your scholarship is that you care about communication. And I don't mean a, a, a utilitarian um, lack of um, care for creativity in, in saying that. In fact, uh, um, summing up what you say, you write in the book, um, people will be judged on whether or not they have lived lives leavened by the divine imperative of social justice, which I just think is so poetic. And in that um, first um, introductory part of um, your most recent text, um, you, you do invite us in in such a, a warm embrace into your own particular story. Drew and I really appreciate that, as he has mentioned. We're, we're so serious about um, uh, theology um, uh, sprouting from our own biography. We want to ask, when, as a way of entering into your personal story, do you have particular memories of when you first encountered the Bible? Are there particular things that come to mind for you when you think about your, your first introduction to the biblical text? Well, you know, as I as I said in the introduction to Christians Against Christianity, you know, sometimes it felt like my sister and I were born were born in the Sunday school room at our church. Right. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't remember not going to Calvary Baptist Church. And so, you know, I encountered the Bible in a certain way from a very young age in Sunday school. Um, it didn't, of course, have a lot of meaning. It seemed other than it seemed mystical and but I did know that it was calling us to be good people. We understood that. Um, I didn't start reading the Bible seriously. Uh, oh, I guess until my, I was a grown man. Um, you see, I, I, I rebelled against the church because um, I, I, I grew up during the civil rights movement. And, uh, and I got involved in the Black Nationalist Movement in Newark, New Jersey with um, Amiri Baraka. Uh, and um, so you know, I saw the church as, as counter-revolutionary and politically backward and apolitical. So I, I, I left the church and uh, you know, much to my parents' chagrin, you know, they just, when I told them I was no longer Christian, to them that meant that I was gonna be a serial killer, you know, I mean, that's either you're a Christian or you're a terrible person, and you know, I mean, in their in their their way. They're not they weren't judgmental, but that's how country folks see things. And I was born in the country, as the book tells you. Um so I, I you know, I I no, that's not true. I started reading the Bible in my late teens to argue against it. <laughs> right. That's when I first got serious about it, to argue against it and argue against preachers and um but i but my yeah so that's how how i got involved i didn't get involved really into reading the bible in a different way in a in in, in a more open-minded way until actually till i was 33 when my i was at my uh, speaking at my father's funeral and um you know it's i don't want to get you know 
supernatural, metaphysical, but I, I do, it was almost like I hear, heard a voice saying, this is to be your site of struggle, you know, the mm. church. And so I started reading it then, but I, I only knew to read the red letter King James version, seriously. I, and so I didn't really get any real, it wasn't until I got in seminary that I really started reading the Bible really, mm. you know, yeah. in a devotional way. So I'm interested as you're um, thinking about your story, like if you were to think about these different stages in your life, being born literally right in Sunday school, a teenager, uh, refuting <laughs> with the text, um, and then later, you know, um, kind of taking it more seriously, like at those different stages, would you say that you were encountering, you know, uh, was the Bible being presented and were you encountering it in a liberative way? Were you experiencing it as an oppressive text? How, how did that play out in these different stages of your life? I experienced it, the little that I knew about it, I experienced it as, as oppressive, you know, I, because um, in our circles, you know, we railed against the turn the other cheek, um, which I explained the politics of Jesus is not mm -hmm. as it sounds, um, uh, or is not what it sounds like. But, um, right. You know, and then um, there was, you know, the, the problem of, of the white Jesus, um, you know, which is ahistorical, but also it's white supremacist. I mean, there's no, yeah. used to kill me when they say, well, um, it doesn't matter what color Jesus is. I said, well, then why does he have to be white? Why is he white? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I real uh, against that. I, um, I saw Jesus as a, um, uh, well, in the parlance of, of the street at the time, I saw Jesus as, 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 as a weak punk, you know, um, mm. and I didn't have, you know, any, um, any real respect. I mean, I, you know, I was operating fully out of ignorance and just the kind of things that I heard in those, uh, you know, those, um, uh, you know, revolutionary uh, circles. Um, uh, did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of, I was yeah, just really true. curious about, you know, whether you were experiencing the scriptures as liberating, as oppressive, as something else, and how that kind of developed. So, yeah, just interesting to hear yeah. how your story moved. Yeah, well, you know, what changed things for me, I, I can't leave this out, is I, my first career was on Wall Street. I worked at old E.F. Hutton, and mm -hmm. I was, on uh, one Saturday afternoon, I was in South Orange, New Jersey, and I forget, I went to a bookstore, and there I saw this book with a strange title. The Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagel. Mm. Later, I ended up being her first uh, student, graduate student to graduate, oddly enough, many years later. But um, I read that and I realized that there was one more than one way to read the scriptures that, you know, that one could use uh, a political lens, a political hermeneutic. Yeah, um, mm. and that and that much of the Bible was about power, um, uh, about distribution of power and denial of power, and so yeah, that 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 transformed the way I I uh, I saw the Bible. Mm. Yeah. Which kind of leads us to our next question, Dr. Hendricks. Um, there is a a precision in which you use um. Uh, terms like gospel and uh, the gospels and uh, that says something of 
your hermeneutic in, in a way um, uh, to help others do that work to open up new possibilities of different ways of engaging the texts that are liberative. Um, uh, would you um, uh, invite us into, and, and those listening, um, uh, for those who long for ways to engage the biblical texts in ways that um, do speak of life um, instead of some of the other things that people often encounter, um, where, where would you start? Where would I start? Uh, to explain a, a, a hermeneutic um, uh, that looks different to death dealing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I think the important thing is first to look at Jesus setting in life, you know. Mm. Um, and he was a uh, an oppressed uh, colonial subject, right? And, uh, and deeply oppressed people, demoralized people. And um, and then to put his, his message into into context and, uh, and, and to realize, and you put it into context, you see that he's, that there's a political dimension to his ministry that um, needs to be taken into account at all times. You know, not everything he said is political in the sense that it's about um, the distribution of rights and power and wealth and, and all that. Um, but one has to keep that perspective because he was a, a political figure. And, uh, and so I think that's an important you know, point, point of, of entry. And that helps us understand, for instance, the Lord's Prayer in a different way. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if he, was, if he was in a setting of great poverty and, and oppression and uh, um, by the Roman Empire, and they, they ask him, teach them how to pray. And he says, uh, um, you know, our father, I never, um, your kingdom come. It's like, okay, that's, there's nothing there except, um, you know, Caesar's kingdom's already there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, wait, that's sweet. So let's see, saying to pray for Caesar's kingdom to be replaced. And then when you, you know, look, look more deeply about what the kingdom is, the, this notion of the kingdom of God or the sole sovereignty of God goes back to the Hebrew Bible, Malkos um, And, you know, the, the, the kingdom of the, the kingdom of God, the sole sovereignty of God was such that um, no one was, no one or no one's teachings, no one's laws were to be, were to supersede those of God, right? And so we know that up until Oh, the early second century, I think it's 132 AD with uh, the last rebellion, Jewish rebellion against the, the, uh, the Romans, uh, the God Bar Kokhba um, uh, rebellion, that warriors would go into battle saying, Malkut Shemayim, the sole sovereignty of God, or what we call the kingdom of God. They, you know, I mean, uh, it was tantamount to way, way um, during the Crusades that the Muslims went in saying, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. You know, so it's it's a very radical thing. So if we keep that in mind, you know, it helps us understand things like a little different. So he says, you know, knowing Lord's uh, spirit of the Lord's on, upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Well, uh, you know, that could be just some kind of, you know, superficial thing. But wait a minute. If there is, we have to see if there's a political dimension. And what does that mean? Well, what's good news to the poor? Mm. Well, that structures 
that he's announcing that uh, he's heralding that the structures becoming more just and more equitable. So that's the kind of hermeneutic I think that we, we must keep in mind that there is a political dimension underlying Jesus gospel. Everything is not political, but we have to, but because he is so concerned about, um, about relationships of, 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 of uh, power and uh, disempowerment and wealth and poverty. In fact, he talks about poverty and uh, more than anything else that we must also always keep in the back of our minds um, a political hermeneutic uh, to let us see that that might be something there that we haven't noticed before. Mm, that's good. That's good. And I think, you know, I know so many folks, you know, they're raised and they're taught, which is almost the opposite of that, right? Which is um, Christianity is not political at all, right? That's what they're taught, right? And it doesn't really actually make sense because everything, you know, but, but they're, they're taught that. And I do think it's quite the invitation, especially when you take seriously the historical context to think about what do these words actually mean? How would they have sounded in people's ears in the first century as they're living under the Roman, uh, under Roman occupation, right? All of a sudden, then you hear the lordship of Jesus and God, euangelion and kingdom and all these words, right? Um, pronouncing Jesus as savior, right? Um, or all these things be applied to Caesar, yeah. Right, instead of being applied to Caesar, exactly. And so mm -hmm. I do think that that is a, quite the invitation for folks, right? To, to begin reading the Jesus story in a whole new way um, that can be life altering um, when you actually begin to take seriously those political dimensions of Jesus's teachings. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah absolutely. I think you're right. I, I think you're absolutely right. So um, I'm curious, uh, I know you kind of teased a little bit in terms of touching on um, you know, the teachings of the sheep and the goat from Jesus, but what would, would you say there's a connection between, what do you see between this political hermeneutic? How do you see that playing out in, in that particular text? Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's very interesting. Um, I think, um, well, first, I, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a deeply ethical message, right? Um, yeah. Deeply ethical framework. Um, and so it can be applied you know, many ways, but essentially what it is, it, it, what it is, is, is saying um, in social and political terms is that we have to be just, period. We, we must act justly and lovingly, and we must be concerned about the common good, not just, you know, our, our uh, individual, uh, you know, uh, and personal needs, which is why, which is why right-wing evangelicalism is so anathema to the to the gospel because yeah. you know they have this individualistic libertarian you know mm -hmm. um, you know response and um, there was in in the the whole in in all the cultures of uh, of the biblical period other than maybe the 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 uh, latest books in the uh, in the Bible like the uh, the pastoral epistles and all that prior to that folk. Their concern was the community, the common, the common good. There was no notion really of individualism. There's no word in the Hebrew, biblical Hebrew for individuals. Always ha'am, ha the people. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, that's um, I forgot the question, but um, I hope the answer speaks to it. <laughs> now that, that's incredibly rich, and uh, I, I work this morning to news that um, uh, your president had um, uh, used. 
Isaiah 6 um, in um, uh, Whom Shall I Send? Uh, uh, and um, young American soldiers responded, Here I am, Lord, send me, which um, is, is fascinating in, in terms of everything you're, you're talking about, the, the ways in which um, people claim a, uh, a, a non-political gospel, but what it actually becomes is just like a, a barnacle on this ship that's, that's literally sailing out to war, like with um, the invasion of Afghanistan. And to use that phrase that um, the Black Church taught me, in my sanctified imagination, I, I could imagine the Lord saying, Who, whom shall I send? And Americans saying, here I am, Lord, send me. And um, the Lord replying, but you've read a few pages earlier about beating that swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks stuck and uh, studying war no more, right? Like the, um, it, it, I'm interested when people encounter uh, uh, your scholarship coming out of the kind of evangelicalism which um, you're um, prophetically exposing, uh, what, what are the responses? Like, I, I'm sure um, uh, everybody's not as rapt as um, Drew and myself um, to your work. What, what kind of pushback do you find in response when you start actually um, uh, making plain uh, that which is often deliberately concealed? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one thing, a um, couple things. One thing is, um, I make it plain and folk understand that I take Jesus seriously. Mm. And uh, so at the very worst, if I'm wrong, I'm sincerely wrong. Um, mm. um, and so, you know, I get, I get uh, some, you know, I get some consideration. Um, um, but also I, uh, you know, I be, because I'm a biblical scholar, not, not, not a theologian, I'm able to paint the historical circumstance. Um, and uh, it's, it's meaningful for, for people. I mean, for instance, the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, uh, give us this day our daily bread. And then, you know, to, to paint the picture of the widespread hunger and, you know, and, and, and to fill it in. And, and uh, you know, folk, it, it makes sense, makes sense to folk. Um, but I'll tell you, an experience I had um, when I was in seminary, um, like some seminarians, well, I can't lie better than I said, just like myself, I had had a, a, a full semester seminary, so I was, you know, full of myself. I knew more about the Bible than you know, <laughs> the church, so I was invited to preach at this by this uh, gentleman, late Carl Hunter, to preach at his church at the eight o'clock service. Um, the young people's service. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to wow. You know, I'm, I'm going to prepare a radical sermon. Um, and it, it sounded more like a, a term paper. It was the political economy of the Lord's Prayer, right? That's the sermon, <laughs> right? And uh, I got there with my, my sermon. I walked in and it wasn't a young people's service. It was a, the older people's, a senior citizen service. I'm like, oh, oh and I am, um, you know, I'm a uh, an experienced preacher, so all I had was that one sermon with me. So I just had to preach it. So afterward, you know, the old people in the church and in the black church, they're so loving, you know. Um, mm. Reverend, that was a nice um, uh, 
uh, talk, talk you gave, and you know, they were being nice. So that, that lecture you gave was, it was nice, it was all right. So I'm talking to folk and they're being, you know, kind, but I looked down the center of the aisle, it was a large church, so it was, you know, the, the back of the church was, was a little distance. And I see this elderly black woman on a walker coming toward me, frowning, man, she is frowning. I'm like, oh Lord, I'm in trouble now. And she's coming and she can't get there fast enough. I'm like, let me get my whipping and get it over with. So finally she gets up to me. Reverend? I said, yes, ma'am. I'm ready to cry at that point, she said. <laughs> I always know there was something wrong with what they was teaching us. And I realized at that point that the people are much more open huh. to, to, to being taught than the pew would let on. And so to say it, I, I, I get a pretty good hearing in, church, um, in churches. I've had some folk get up, walk out. Um, I've been called the devil. But, you know, I get a pretty good hearing in church because, again, I respect folk. Um, I don't talk down to folk. And I deal with the Bible. And I'm here to tell you, if you want to get a hearing from Black folk, at least a, 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 an initial hearing, talk about Martin Luther King or Jesus? <laughs> you know it's true. So, so I, I, I I do all right, and because I'm I'm ordained, I get some you know I, I get some some leeway from that too. Now it sounds like you're talking about my my own uh, scholarship. <laughs> Both my books, Jesus, and I throw a little King in there, right? Yes, but right. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, but I, I, that it takes me to um, some of what I want to say, which I mentioned at the at the beginning of our conversation. I I really appreciate um, the way that you take folks seriously and don't talk mm -hmm. down to folks and and and, and, and intentionally. Uh, write your scholarship for the people. And I want to hear you just talk a little bit about like, like, how did you get there? I know sometimes as a young scholar myself, sometimes, I, you know, I feel like I'm going against the grain of what I'm supposed to be doing. And it looks less than, right? Um, but I kind of have a sense of like, why I do what I do. But I'm curious about what was your path to kind of doing this scholarship in this way? Yeah, it's a good point. Well, you know, I was clear who I wanted to, to speak to. I wanted to speak to the people in, in, mm -hmm. in the U. Um, you know, I was trained at Princeton uh, University in the heyday of its religion department when um, Cornell West was there. I had two one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. seminars with him, um, Al Rabito. Oh, uh, wow. You know, we had some, some, real, some real giants. And, um, and so I was, you know, really steeped in theory, in um, critical social theory. Um, but as I listened to many of my colleagues, I won't mention any names, some of the names you'll know, you know, who are so, so steeped in, so um, invested in sounding deep and using all kinds of theoretical terms and jargon and all that, I realized that wasn't the way I wanted to go. And it was, it was difficult because I mean, I got, you know, folk, some of them came at me sometimes because they, you know, yeah. I, I was so, I didn't, was the term to use? I didn't complex, complexify things enough, you know? Um, and so, yeah, it was, my ego took some hits, but I was clear that I wanted to, 
to speak to the pew. And also, I've been giving some lectures on the politics of Jesus. And Freddie Haynes, um, mm-hmm. I, I spoke at his church, and Freddie said, listen, if you don't write this book, I'm going to write it. I said, okay, <laughs> that's what I need to do. I tried to keep my Aunt Kate in, in mind uh, when I was writing the book. And if you notice the politics of Jesus and in Christians Against Christianity, I don't use, uh, a, a, well, I use very little, well, no theory, really. And, I, and the little I might use, I try to explain um, because my whole purpose is, I said, I, I felt my calling was my site of struggles in the church. And, I, and you know, I, I can't reach people writing to them like they're academicians, you know. Um, and it's not necessary. Folk are not dumb, you know. So um, that's 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 the way that I that's the way I I, I approached it. Um, and but I must say that I did publish one book, which is my 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 least selling book. Um, it's called The Universe Bends Toward Justice. Towards Justice, right? And uh, and I and, and I did include some some essays in there that are uh, more theoretical. Only to prove to my colleagues that I that I got it, that I understand. <laughs> you know. Yeah, no, I get it. I, I always feel like so I, I'll present my papers at AAR and then keep writing my, you know, other books and stuff and do yeah. what I do. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean that's that's the most important thing. We our, our our task is to is to raise people's consciousness and uh and in uh, this fight for for justice in a you know in a, in a just new world, and we we can't do that writing to other academicians, right? I mean, can't do that. Mm. So I'm with you, brother. Dr. Hendricks, um, in your epilogue, you you talk about um, you use that phrase that you used of um, yourself, um, uh, sincerely wrong, and it really struck me um, uh, both the humility of using the same phrase for yourself, but um, also the graciousness of which um, those of whom you're engaging. Um, I was almost tempted to ask you, um, could, could we do First John for, uh, just because I found it so powerful um, what you did, uh, particularly with language, like you dared to engage language um, that uh, often for um, the religious right, they claim and monopolize and uh, mm-hmm. you, you use that language. Um, but you didn't weaponize it. In fact, um, you used it in such a way that um, was an optical. You invited people in who might be engaging in reading and um, in inviting them into something more beautiful. Um, uh, would you give us a, a, a sneak peek? I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to um, uh, ruin what's there for, for everybody to, to read, but would you give us a, a little... Um, sneak peek um, into what you did in that final section. In the spirit of Antichrist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I explained a little in, in the beginning. Um, you know, I looked at first, first John, uh, first Epistle of John, in, uh, which uh, talks about uh, the spirit of the Antichrist. And uh, and you know, I ex- explain what he's talking about, and then I apply that to right-wing evangelicals. Um, not, you know, I don't, I don't weaponize it to declare, for instance, uh, Donald Trump um, an antichrist, um, because you know, it's the anti. 
the letter says that they're, they're antichrist and antichrist they use plural so there'll be you know and it says that they're they're now and they will be in the future so there'll be many people throughout history who will uh, in the name of christ you know uh, teach the opposite of what christ teach but you know if i was to identify a soul single you know antichrist you know it would be a Donald Christ, a Donald Trump, rather. Yeah. Because, why? Because Donald Trump is the antithesis of the of the gospel message, and he tries and he portrays himself, oddly enough and 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 ridiculously enough, he portrays himself as some kind of believing Christian. And as I point out in Christians Against Christianity, I mean the guy hardly doesn't really know what Easter is. He's he admits that he's never repented. For anything, because he's never done anything wrong, or if he's done anything wrong, he forgives himself. I mean, it's sick. They ask him who Jesus is to him, and he sounds like he's talking about, a, you know, a, a cartoon superhero or something. It's just, it's just ridiculous. So, you know, what I really want, what I really say in this in, in this chapter is that um, right wing evangelicalism is is dominated and imbued with and by this spirit of antichrist that has caused, caused them to oppose, to stand against righteousness, to stand against justice, um, to stand against loving the neighbor. I mean, to do the exact opposite of what gospel believers are supposed to do. And that makes them um, um, <clears throat> opponents of Christianity or antichrists. Um, and we need to look at it. And, and the other implication of that though is that what what they are purveying is evil. Um, now, some of the people don't, some of the followers don't know any better. And I, I, I believe that some of them are really, uh, are really fooled. You know, they are, I mean, some of them don't care whether it's, whether it's right or not because they just, they're hateful anyway, but some don't know any better. Nonetheless, they are engaged in an evil project. You know, when you support putting children in cages, say there's nothing wrong with that. You know, that's just evil. Yeah. When you support a guy who uh, who spews, I mean, all kinds of vileness and vitriol every minute of the day, um, and all the pain he's caused Asians and Blacks and gays and Mexicans and Muslims, that's evil. Mm -hmm. And we have to help them to see that they're engaged in, in a project that is so evil that um, that they are standing against the very Christ that they claim to believe in. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it's it's really important, and um, uh, often when uh, from other parts of the world you read um, a text written for America for America, um, there isn't much an awareness of anything outside. I don't feel that at all with anything you write. Uh, I feel there, there is such a sense that, you know, the conversation in America is uh, uh, so important uh, to the rest of us, not um, to the exclusion of the rest of us. And I really appreciate that as well. Um, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, as we wrap the part that um, will be on the podcast itself, um, where can people find you if uh, they're, they're looking to follow your work um, and, and engage it more thoroughly? Yeah, I can be found on Twitter at 
at Obrey Hendricks, O-B-E-R-Y-H-E-N-D-R-I-C-K-S, or my website, uh, ObreyHendricksPhD.com, uh, ObreyHendricksPhD.com. And I love to hear from folk, you know, because I, I, I hear from the wrong folk um, enough. <laughs> so I, I, I get a little bit of hate, you know, and it's, it's ignorant. I mean, I wouldn't mind anyone engaging me on the issue. I mean, I, and if they can show me wrong, I'm wrong, well, okay. But they don't engage the issues. Like, how dare you say that? Or I don't believe it. Or, and a lot of it is racial. It's like, how dare a black guy dare to, dare to stand up like some kind of expert or something. And so, you know, but you know, I keep moving. Well, hopefully our listeners can um, balance some of that height. And uh, in the Q&A, we'd love to um, uh, get into a little bit just how um, the way that you mapped the history of the religious right coming out of segregation, um, I think is such an important part of the story that gets lost when people just turn on the news and see what's happening in America currently. Um, so maybe we can uh, open some of that up. Um, thank you so much. My pleasure. It's my pleasure. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.